You're listening to the First Corinthians When Immaturity Meets Worldliness series preached by Pastor Rick Dressler at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Take your Bibles, if you would, this morning and look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become as a sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mystery and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profits me nothing. Charity suffers long and is kind. Charity envies not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. Doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinks no evil. Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Charity never faileth. But whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, then face to face, Now I know in part, but then shall I know, even as also I am known. And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three. But the greatest of these is charity. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. It's the only thing that there's just too little of. Many of you thought that was scripture. It's not. Okay? not. But we, we come to this chapter of love, and for many, we see it as this rhapsody that, that Paul is just extolling and exalting the virtue of love, and it's, it's sort of poetic as we work our way through, and, and this is love, love, love. But remember, there's a reason. Paul has written this chapter because the church in Corinth was struggling as a body. They had some issues. And this chapter of love was written to them because they were responsible for their lack of love within the body of Christ. And I think you'll find as we work our way through this text that every description that Paul uses to demonstrate love relates exactly back to this church and their problems. There were factions. There there was division. They were arrogant. They were full of pride. They had issues. And so so Paul says, wait a minute now. This is not how the body of Christ is to act or to respond. And then he gives us the reality of this love. This love that we're speaking about this morning is not ooey, gooey, drippy, hippie, flip-flops, long hair, flamboyant, rose petals in the sky kind of love. It's not that. It's not mush and meaningless. It is the love of God. 
It is this agape or agape, this selfless love. This love that thinks first and foremost, not about me, but about others. It is zealously concerned with the interest and welfare of those around us. So much so that the interest and welfare of others becomes our own. And we're moved by that need. This is what Paul is speaking about. And this should not surprise us. Jesus said, by this one thing should all men know that you're my disciples. John 13, he says that you have love one for another, and this is the love that he is speaking about. This selfless, self-giving, zealous love for others. Years ago, we had an opportunity to take a group of young people to New York City. New York is is an amazing city. If you've ever been there, you know. If you haven't, if you could go, you should go. And one of the highlights of the trip was to take the kids to Battery Park. It's a park um, in Manhattan just outside of the ferry that you go to see the Statue of Liberty. And what I loved about Battery Park is that when you're there, um, these guys just come out of the woodwork. And they all have briefcases and trench coats. And they approach you and they say, hey, listen, would you like to buy a Gucci watch? Would you like to buy a Rolex? And they go through the whole list, and they open up the briefcase, and sure enough, here are these watches with the name Gucci and Rolex, and, and on and on and on. It's like, this is impressive. How much for one of these authentic watches? And they say, I can do a deal for you. $20. $20 for a Gucci, for a Rolex. I'm in, man, and you wheel and deal, you get them down to 10 bucks, and you have a new Rolex watch that lasts for three weeks. Because it's a cheap imitation. A cheap imitation. And I think for too long, the Church of Jesus Christ has been practicing a cheap imitation when it comes to love. It's not authentic. It's not Christ's love. Listen to what Jonathan Edwards said about this love, speaking about 1 Corinthians 13. He said, this is Christian love. This Christian love is the summary of the Christian spirit. And what he was saying is this. In chapter 13, we see what this love is all about. This is authentic Christian love. And as we go through this, you will see that this love is inseparable from the revelation and the acts of the triune God. A matter of fact, as you look at this list in chapter 13, you could replace charity or love with the name of Christ, and it would be truly descriptive of him. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus has no envy. He doesn't have a high opinion of himself. He's not lifted up or arrogant. He is ever fair. He doesn't think of himself. He doesn't quickly go to anger. He takes no account of evil. He takes no pleasure in wrongdoing. He rejoices in the truth. And certainly as we see that chapter, we see an incarnation of our Lord and Savior. But perhaps a better question to ask this morning is, as we look at that list that was written to the church, Where do we come out on the list? 
What if this morning we took love out of the equation and we put our name in the blank? We read 1 Corinthians 13 and said, Rick is patient. Rick is kind. These things are all true, by the way, as I'm going through them for you, just so that you know. doesn't have a high opinion of himself. Not arrogant. doesn't think evil always fair. Rejoices in truth. The, the fact is, I did the list this week. And I was thoroughly disappointed in myself. And if you're here this morning saying, I could do the list and I think I'd score 100%. Then two things for you. First, I don't think you understand what those words mean, and, and I think you miss the idea of humble, right? And so we're going to look at that list this morning. Look back in our text now, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse number 4. And I just want you to notice, before we jump into this, and, and sometimes it's hard to see because of translations, right? But what, what Paul is using, these words here, they're not adjectives. They're verbs. They're verbs. And the tense of these verbs is habitual as well as present action. Okay? What he's about to do is to say to us, listen, this is how love is demonstrated. Not just saying or speaking, but this is what it does. It is not just words. This love is always shown. It is shown by what you do or what you do not do. We can get a handle on this. It's not just I love you and that settles it. This love is an action. And what Paul is saying is that, that this disposition of love ought to be fundamental to our attitude, our expression, and our disposition. So, here we go. 1 Corinthians 13, verse number 4. And for the sake of all of us this morning, I'm just taking one of them. One. Some of you thinking, that's fantastic. It's 11.36, we should be done at about 11.40. Wrong, all right? We're going to take some time on this one this morning. Charity, love, suffers long. And, and remember now, Paul is talking to a church with issues. He's talking to the church in Corinth. Today, he's talking to the church in Chatham. Love suffers long, or we might say, love is patient, Patient. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear the word patient, the first thing that comes to my mind is standing in line, maybe at Tim Hortons or maybe at Starbucks, and ordering our drink and just being patient as we wait for our Frappuccino. I hate to even say that. I'm not a big Starbucks guy, but every time I mention Starbucks to my youngest son, he always calls me a white girl. And he acts as if I'm going to take some picture of my drink and post it on Facebook. Uh, and I'm not. But I do like this strawberry drink there that has some whipped cream on the top. It's, it's girly. Um, but we think, I'm patient. I'm sitting just waiting for my drink. I'm whistling a little bit. I'm, I'm, I'm patient. The, the barista there is doing a great job. And I'm patient. The problem is that's not exactly what he's talking about. Certainly, we could all do better in the area of patience when it comes to waiting in circumstances. But Paul's talking about patience with people. Years ago, a man said to me, he said, what kind of church do you, you want? This was from one of his professors in seminary. I said, what do you mean? 
he said, because if you have a people of, if you have a church of 10 people, you have 10 problems. If you have a church of 100 people, you have 100 problems. And if you have a church of 250 people, you have 250 problems. What was he saying? People are problems. You're a problem, and I'm a problem. And Paul says, this love is patient. I, I think the word long-suffering helps us, right? The idea is that when it comes to dealing with one another, and specifically in the context of the church, and it works its way out, this love is patient. It, it has the ability to endure injury by what's said or what's done without retaliation. That's what Paul is speaking about here. This is the love he's talking about. It endures injury without seeking retaliation. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm going to be honest this morning. When I hear statements like this, like, hey, you were hurt, someone hurt you, they said something unkind, or they did something mean, in my flesh, my first response automatically is, you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you. Anybody else with me on that? Okay, a couple of honest people, thank you. And the truth is, this idea just naturally rubs me the wrong way. It, it's contrary to our culture. As a matter of fact, it was contrary to Paul's culture. The Greek and Roman culture, it was a virtue, if you were injured, to respond quickly and to retaliate. And that's natural. The problem is, in Christianity, we have no such mandate. It throws our culture and it throws our, our, our self and what we think upside down on its head. And Paul says that this love is long-suffering. It suffers long. When it is injured, when it is harmed, and when it can retaliate, it chooses not to. Anybody here ever been hurt at work? Can I see your hands? You've been hurt at work. No, I'm not talking about, yeah, i got a compensation coming right now and I can't wait to get it solved. No, I, I, I mean... I mean, someone said something unkind, or did, you've been hurt at work. Can I see your hands? Okay, a large majority. What is it about the world today? It seems like we're breeding idiots, does it not? I mean, you go to work, and, and it's almost as if those people wake up in the morning, and on their checklist, your name is there. And it's like, my goal for today is to make their life miserable. Anybody know folks like that? Yeah. You're thinking of some names right now. And they're out there. And they're nasty and they're unkind. And it's like when you walk into the room, here it comes. They're going to say or do something that is unkind. We've been hurt at work. Let me ask you this. Anybody here ever been hurt in a relationship? Can I see your hands? Okay. Some people must be dead, but others are good had a friendship, a close association, and something was said and done, it was unkind. You were vulnerable in a relationship, maybe a marriage, and you were hurt and devastated. You were, you were vulnerable. And they took that vulnerability and they just, they cut you to the quick. It hurts. You were injured. 
you were harmed. How many folks this morning say, I've been hurt in church? Can I see your hands? How many folks have been hurt in this church? Can I see your hands? Thank you for being honest. Now listen to me. If you have not raised your hand and if you've not been hurt, I have a promise for you. I will hurt you. I'm going to. I'm going to. You will be here and some in this church or I will hurt you and you will hurt me. This is what happens. This is a people problem. And we've all experienced this. Now here's the question. How then do we respond when this happens? At work, when that guy or that girl's there and they got you in their crosshairs and they do that, what's your response? Is it, yeah, that's okay, I know where you park. I know where you stash your lunch. You got it coming, man. You hurt me, it's coming. In that relationship, when you were hurt by that person, how do you respond? It's like, okay, you hurt me. Now the gloves are coming off. And I was vulnerable. Now I'm going to find your weakness. I'm going to exploit that. Here's what Christian people do. This is really great, especially in marriage. They get hurt by a spouse. And what they do then is they attack their spirituality. Oh, Mr. Spiritual. Oh, you read your Bible this morning? Hypocrite. Right? You say, Pastor, is my spouse talking to you? Yes, they are. No, I'm just telling you, that's, that's how we do things. How do you respond? When you're hurting a church, is it like, forget this, I'm done. Or I'm going to stay there, but I'm going to let you know, they hurt me, and I'm going to tell you specifically how they hurt me, and we're going to go into gory details, and I might just embellish it just a bit, because I want you to know, man, they really hurt me. And because they hurt me, you shouldn't even talk to them. You, you should, if they're on that side of the church, you better be on this side of the church. Now, can I tell you something? All of these scenarios, we have been there. We have done this. Now, I want you to be, be understand something. That when I'm talking about these situations, I'm not speaking about ignoring sinful behavior. That's not what we're talking about this morning. Sinful behavior must be dealt with. If someone's being sinful and doing things that are sinful in a workplace, in a relationship, truth and love confronts them. And in a church, that's why we have discipline. I'm not talking about that, nor am I talking about being indifferent this morning. Some of you folks think, yeah, I was hurt, but my attitude now is, I don't even care. That's not a victory for you. Can I tell you something? Some of you folks, you think the opposite of love is hate. It is not. The opposite of love is indifference. But I don't even care about you. I couldn't care less about you. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about being harmed by someone, what they said or what they do. And then we as believers saying and acknowledging, I have been harmed, but by the grace of God, I am not going to respond in kind. And I'm going to practice this demonstration of love, which suffers long. Look with me, if you would, at 1 Peter chapter 2 this morning. 1 Peter chapter 2, and find your way, if you would, down to verse number 19. 1 Peter 2, 19. It's actually good to hear pages turning. We live in a society of phones, which is fine. We've got stuff on the walls. It's good to hear pages turning. It's good to see it for yourself, to mark things down. 
1 Peter chapter 2, verse 19. Listen to what Peter says. He says, For this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffer wrongfully. So he's speaking to believers who, who in his time, this is why the epistles were written, they were really suffering. Andrew prayed this morning about the fact that we come and worship in freedom and peace without persecution. They were facing persecution. And so, so Peter says, this is thankworthy if you are suffering for doing right. Look what he says in verse 20. For what glory is it when you be buffeted or punished for your faults? You shall take it patiently. What's the glory in that? The fact is, if you're in trouble because you were doing wrong, that's what you get. If you're the person at work who is a lazy bum, and you're always causing drama at work, don't say, I'm just suffering for Jesus. You're not. You're suffering for yourself and your stupidity. If you're the person in the relationship who is toxic, and you're always the victim... It's always a problem, and the relationships around you, all of them fall apart. You are not suffering for Jesus. You're suffering for yourself. If you're in a church and you're selfish, and you never give of yourself, and, and nothing ever lasts in your relationships, don't talk about how holy you are. You are being buffeted or punished for your own actions. Don't pull Jesus into it. That's not on him. Peter says, if you take that patiently, good for you, but you should. You had that coming. And then he says, in the middle of the verse, But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. Okay, I'm trying to do right. And this person may hurt me, but I'm going to suffer, take it patiently. Verse 21 now watch this. For even hereunto were you called. Christian, do you know what he just said? Hey, you were called. And the reason you were called was to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. Oh, no, that was Olstein. I'm sorry. That wasn't Peter. That was Olstein who said that. Peter said, you were called to suffer. Everybody wants to be like Jesus, but nobody wants to suffer. I'm sorry. It doesn't work. And I can't promise you anything else because Jesus didn't promise anything else either. You're called to suffer. And Christian, man and woman, teenager, if you're going to live godly in Christ Jesus, you shall suffer persecution. The world is no friend of grace. It never has been, it never will be, until joy to the world, the Lord has come. You're called to suffer. And then he says, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps. And then Peter sort of flashes back to the life of Christ. Who did no sin, he's perfect. It, it was none of it was his fault. None of it was his doing. He was the perfect, sinless, spotless Lamb of God, who did 
no sin. Neither was guile found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. I don't know if you understand as you go through the crucifixion of what was said about Christ. They called him a bastard. They said he was a drunk. And then on the cross, the Pharisees said, oh, you're the son of God. Hey, why don't you come on down and prove it to us? And even the thieves next to him chimed in. Oh, he saved others. Save yourself and save us too. He was reviled. He was spit upon. He was beaten. He was abused. He was marginalized. He was truly victimized. He was perfect. He doesn't revile back. When he suffered, he threatened not but committeth himself to him that judgeth righteously, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. And so this morning, as we examine long-suffering, we have Christ's example. We have God's command. We make a decision whether I will or will not demonstrate love. And we have the ability of the Holy Spirit within us to love the way that God would have us to love. Now listen to me. I acknowledge this morning that what, this is the first one in the list. This is the first one. And what I'm telling you is, it is not easy. It's not. The truth is, it is so unnatural that it just blows our mind that we could actually live like this. It's not easy. And I'm not saying that when we're done here, we're all going to leave here and say, okay, I have harm and injury, but look at I'm suffering along and do it with the right heart and right spirit. I get that. But let me say something to you. Some of you don't even try. The first time something happens to you, you're ready to pounce. You're looking for a fight. You want to seek revenge. It's all about, yeah, you know about paybacks. And I'm talking now to Christian people who know the Lord. Of course, it's not easy. The truth is, it's, it's impossible unless the Spirit of God helps us put on Christ. I'm not talking to children this morning. I'm talking to adults, and spiritually. Listen to me. Babies are cute. I actually like babies. I really do. I pet their heads and smile at them and all that kind of stuff. I like babies. Um, I'm actually good with babies, I think. I think usually I can get a baby to stop crying. You know, you put them in a room and you leave, and then it's done. They stop crying. And they're cute, but can I tell you something? A baby who acts like a baby at five years old is no longer cute. And if you question that, go to Walmart sometime. You know, aisle five, six, and seven. Ah! Ah, I want this! It's just a nightmare. A baby at 15 is not cute at all. 
at all. And a baby who's 30 is disgusting. Right? Too many of us, spiritually, we're babies. Okay. What, what do you want in your Christian life, right? I mean, what is it that you're after? I don't know about you, but inside of me, and I know I fall short, but there really is a sense that I want to know Him. I want to know this Savior who died for me. I truly want to know Him. And not only that, in my heart, and even though I fail, I want to be like Him. I want to be like the Master. I want to grow up. I want to please Him. And if you're here this morning and you know Christ, that is in there. And I know we fail. I know it's not easy. But this morning what I'd like to do is at least start the process. If you're here this morning and you're convicted by 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, let me say this to you. Then let's move from being convicted about it and knowing truth to applying this truth to our life once we leave this place. Don't you want to grow up? Don't you want to be mature in Christ? I don't want to be the same man I was last year. Or for that matter, last week. I want to be transformed into the image of my Savior. If you're here this morning, I, I, would, I would guess if you're saved, you would want that too. So let me give you four things that I think will help us this morning quickly. And uh, as we go through these, this is not just for 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4. This is for everyday life. How we move from sort of knowing to applying these to our life. Here's the first thing. Number one. And if I were you, I'd write these down because you're going to need them after today. Admit. Admit sin for what it really is. I'm going to date myself a little bit this morning, but when I was a kid, there was one of my favorite shows. I think it was on Tuesday nights. It was called Happy Days. Remember Happy Days? All right. You had Richie Cunningham, Potsy, Ralph, and a character called the Fonz. Remember the Fonz? Hey. How many folks do you remember Happy Days? All right, some of you folks saw because of reruns, I saw the original deal, all right? And if you remember the Fonz, really the cool guy, you know, hair greased back, white t-shirt, jeans, and biker boots. But he had a problem. Whenever he was wrong and he had to apologize, he could never say, I'm sorry. It was like, I'm sorry. And he would just drag it out and never apologize. He would never admit he was wrong. And the problem for many of us this morning is when we're confronted with wrong or we're convicted in our hearts about evil, here's what we do. We do the Fonzie thing like this. Well, you know, that's just the way I am. By the way, Christian, that's a problem. Christ saved you so that you wouldn't stay the way that you were. That's just the way I am, or, yeah, I have my faults. I have my missteps. I have my shortcomings. Why is it that Christian people want to call everybody a sinner but themselves? 
we instinctively know that until you recognize you're a sinner lost in need of a Savior, you cannot be saved, right? Christ didn't come to get those folks who are healthy and were self-righteous. He came to seek and save that which was lost, sinners. Then why is it that we as Christian people, we don't want us to call our sin, sin? By the way, when I am impatient with a brother and sister in Christ, it is sin. It's sin. And so the first thing I do is I say, God, I admit, I confess, I am agreeing with your standard, this is sin. And until you get this one, nothing else matters. For some of us this morning, you better get on your knees and repent and say, God, I'm sorry for my arrogance. I never admit this is sin. Admit, number two, accept God's viewpoint of your sin. When we sin, it's not as if we think God has disappeared. He doesn't, and we know that. But what happens is God is on our peripheral over here. We sort of push him to the side, and we pretend that my sin is not like their sin, and God really doesn't care about this. He's over here. Can I tell you something about your sin and my sin? Christ died for that sin. And we excuse and we minimize. We never accept God's vantage point. As we look at God and his holiness, his righteousness, his purity for who he truly is, not a God that I make up, but the God who is, that he is so holy and so just and so despises sin, your sin, my sin, that the only way to deal with that sin was to crush his son. And on the cross, God's wrath was poured on his head. So I admit, God, this is sinful. Help me now to accept your vantage point. Help me to see it for what it is. Third, I acknowledge, I acknowledge the inconsistency of my sin. The Bible is really clear that people who know Christ They are a new creation, a new creature. Behold, all things are old things are passed away. Behold, all things are becoming new. That means BC, before conversion, my old life. After the conversion, now everything in my life is changing or ought to be changing. I am not who I used to be. Therefore, my behavior when I was lost, yes, acceptable, wicked, sure, that's that. But now that God has saved me, anything that I do for my old life is inconsistent with who I am now. I am no longer what I used to be. I am a child of the one true king. Been saved, born again, redeemed, purchased. I am holy, righteous, and just. And so, when I do something like impatience with brothers and sisters in Christ and have no time for them and don't show love to them, it's inconsistent. When the believer acts like the world, it's problematic. Because I am still in the world, but I am not of the world. 
So I have to understand that this behavior is inconsistent. Acknowledge the inconsistencies of my sin. I'm not what I used to be. Should not be what I used to be. And then finally, we must attack the sin. The Bible says mortify, to kill the flesh, to reject it. Paul goes on in, in Corinth, or Colossians and in Ephesians, he says, put off the old man. Can I tell you something? The old man, the old woman, either one, that old nature, that sinful nature, always wants to respond the wrong way. Always. The old man, when I'm pushed, I push back. And not just push back, I push back twice as hard as you pushed. That's the old man. And Paul says, you put off the old man, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. This is what Jesus has done. This is my example. This is a commandment. The spirit of God speaks to me. Here's what the word of God says. Renewed in your mind and put on the new man. That when I am hurt, when I'm injured, I say, yes, this was wrong. This was an injustice. It's not as if I pretend it didn't happen. It did happen. But in the light of that, I am choosing not to respond the way my flesh wants me to respond. But to say, Lord, this was wrong. I'm looking to the example of Christ. I'm walking in his footsteps. And by your grace, help me to be long-suffering. Long-suffering. Now listen to me, church. Paul is speaking to believers in, in the background of a church body. And he says, this is the love that we're to practice. And for most of us this morning, this is so foreign to us. Because this is how we always respond. We lash out. We hurt back. We hold on to the grudges. And Paul says, you want to demonstrate love like the Savior? You must be long-suffering. It's time to grow up. And I'm, I'm not so naive to think that this is it. We did the message. Okay, next week we're all going to do this. I wish that were the case. Wouldn't it be great? I live long enough to know it is not the case. It is a struggle. It is a battle. It is work. But listen to me. It is God's plan for all of us. You want to know God's will for your life? Here's what it is. That you and I would be transformed into the image of his son. And when people look into the church of Jesus Christ and see a group of people from every background, every race, every culture, every story, every different past come together and in this church suffer long with one another and work these things out and truly love. When the world looks into a church like that, do you know what they see? They see Jesus Christ. And he is glorified. And his kingdom moves forward. And so this morning, I don't know what your need is, but what the church needs now is love, sweet love. It is the one thing in the body of Christ that there's just too little love. And it starts here. It starts in our hearts and lives. And for some of us this morning, we have to repent. <laughs> Just said, God, forgive me. I am arrogant. I am selfish. I don't care. Break my heart. Melt my eyes. Help me to see you and long to be like you.
Let's have a word of prayer this morning.